It's often said that the two things that you are likely to encounter in life, whether you like it or not, are death and taxes. In our wealth creation journeys, we have to plan for both. In this sixth episode of the second season of the Investec Wealth Creation Podcast, we consider how you can create and preserve wealth and ultimately transfer it to your successes. We'll also be talking about how the choices we make today on what we spend and save and how we manage risk and how we talk to our parents and children can all influence our wealth creation journey. I'm joined in this episode by two wealth managers from Investec Wealth and Investment, Neil Ermson and Ruth Forsman. Neil has three decades of experience in financial markets with a keen interest in investor psychology. He's a keen golfer and also a supporter of the Skull and Bones of Orlando Pirates and Tottenham Hotspurs, and he's a father to an adopted son and a daughter. Ruth, on the other hand, has spent two decades of her working life at Investec and is a solutionist by nature. She loves yoga and lives in a multi-generational household filled with laughter and stories and relishes the prospect of teaching her daughter and son numerous money lessons. Neil and Ruth, welcome to the Investec Wealth Creation Podcast. Thank you, Ayabonga. Thank you. Good to be here. So let's get straight into it. Um, And Neil, I'm going to start off with you. You know, the moment we talk about succession or we talk about passing anything on from one generation to the next, we get into some shaky ground. I was saying to you uh, that if I were to approach my father and say, hey, big man, what's happening with your money matters Um, or how many of your sheep am I likely to inherit? Uh, I probably would get into some very sticky terrain there. You probably would think I probably want to take him out. Um, how do we have these discussions and wh- why is it important that we, I guess, wrap our heads around some of the cultural nuance and sensitivities of having this discussion? But the importance ultimately lies in the fact that at some point in time, you as a, as a junior, let's say, in the family will, will inherit some of these funds and um, potentially become the head of the family in respect to the management of these assets. The, the importance of it is that if not dealt with before, the transfer of those funds happens, which is very often at death. A lot of mistakes can be made. And these things, generally speaking, can be both technical things, which would involve the taxation of certain assets, but more often than not, they involve soft matters. Um, Who would the father or the mother like to see managing the wealth going forward? How would they like to see that those assets transferred? Are there businesses that need to be managed? Are there nuances that need to be discussed? So I think it's very important that families do discuss these matters. They're not easy matters, and very often the family itself may not be sure as to who it is they want to include in these discussions. The biggest mistakes are made when they're not discussed. The better option is to find a way to discuss them. How you approach that as a youngster in the family is clearly a very important matter. You have to be very sensitive. You have to take advice. Very often the best way to do it is to include a third party in the discussion so it doesn't look like you're the one that's directly making the request, but maybe bringing an advisor into the picture or bring an executor into the picture and asking to help as opposed to asking for what you might receive might be a good idea. And I, and I guess that's that's the important part as well um, because Ruth, in many instances, if I'm the youngster, it's not just about what I can take, 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 but also there's some responsibility on my end to create some wealth and ultimately preserve it as well. And that has to be part of the discussion as well. What, what are some of the things we might want to consider insofar as that is concerned. Yes, I, I like your point about the responsibility of the wealth inheritor. And I think as a parent of young children, 
10 and 12 year old. I think I like to think of it as teaching my kids the value of money by allowing them to feel the power of its scarcity. Now that might sound a little harsh, but I think it leads into the point of them appreciating the value of money by generating it by themselves in some part. And that teaches them tools that allows them to manage hopefully an increasing portion of wealth, whether it's made by themselves or inherited. Um, and, and maybe just to, to borrow the words of a, an investor that will be well known to, to most of us in alluding to how tricky this topic can be. So Charlie Munger, who's well-known investor, part of the famous duo at a point with Warren Buffett, when he was asked by his billionaire friend contemplating this exact point, and his concern was, he asked Charlie, he said, when thinking about my children inheriting my wealth, should should that take place or will it not spoil them? Will it in fact ruin them? And and Charlie said, they do need to inherit it. Your children need to receive your wealth. They have to, because if, if they don't, they will hate you. Now, I thought that was quite a phenomenal point to, to think about. But I, to Neil's point, it, it's a really complex matter, tough to n- navigate yourself and hopefully to involve a thinking partner or someone that can partner with you on those discussions and bring relevant topics to discussion will assist in that. Yeah, yeah. And I guess, Neil, I mean, is it just about, you know, the long-term horizon? So getting your RAs in place, getting all of your long-term saving instruments in place. Is it just about that? Um, You know, because our working lives can be very, very long. Um, So insofar as the creation of that wealth is concerned, is it just about getting all those products in place um, alongside, I guess, uh, managing the risks associated with um, uh, all of the financial decisions we all make? Look, there's always two parts to this. There's the generation of the wealth and then there's the transfer of the wealth. And I'm reminded of that very famous saying, which I think is very relevant for this discussion and should be, re- should be taken to heart by everybody and remembered. The saying goes, the first generation makes the money, the second generation grows the money, the third generation loses the money. So if you're third generation, you need to make off, make sure that you try and make sure that doesn't become true. But I've seen that in many cases. The first generation is the generation very often that works hard. Perhaps maybe they started a business. Perhaps they had a career. The second generation sees how this was done and how hard the individuals had to work to create this legacy. And they tend to continue with that. The third generation very often doesn't see what the first generation had to do in order to make those funds. So I think in the terms of the transfer of wealth over, to, over time, you need to understand as a family member where you fit in. But that doesn't necessarily mean you need to play that particular role. You can both grow the money and you can create your own wealth. Which brings us to the question around how do you create wealth? And I mean, ultimately, there's two ways to do it. There's three ways, possibly. One, you get lucky. Um, that's not impossible. Um, but let's work on the premise that that's not really what we're setting out to do. Entrepreneurship is obviously one way to do it. And that's essentially creating wealth yourself through a, a new business or a new venture or an idea that you have. And generally speaking, that's not actually most people. Most people are not necessarily entrepreneurs. They don't have the risk appetite and they make a mistake or they lose the capital. So for the majority of people who are not entrepreneurs, and I guess we'll talk about entrepreneurs a bit later on, it's really about being disciplined, creating wealth through a process of saving. Um, And saving is obviously in excess of your expenditure. So the two ways you land up saving is you either cut expenditure or you earn more. In my experience, you're better off trying to earn more than trying to save too much because real wealth is created by earning significant amounts of revenue over and above your expenditure, which you can then save. And doing that um, in a way that is advised or and taking some risks 
and generally speaking, making sure you understand the effect of compounding and ensuring that you do that in a way that is not destroyed by taxes. Sure, sure, sure. Those and are the I guess, that I would be talking you know, that's quite helpful, um, Neil, because it, it frames on the creation side of things, but also there's linked to that, Ruth, this question of preserving it. Um, and, and Neil mentioned something quite important, this question of a risk appetite. Um, all manner of shocks can happen over one's working life that might, you know, lead to your savings being out of kilter or all of your plans and aspirations falling out of step because of one major risk event or shock event. How do we deal with the risk management side of things? You're preserving this wealth, you're saving all of this money, uh, but how do you make sure that you can weather and smooth some of the potential shocks that might be uh, in the water? Mm. In a word, insurance. Insurance and a, sa- a margin of safety. And those are terms that we use often in terms of our dialogue with clients because they're both important concepts but they and they possibly come at an earlier stage of your life than, for example, realizing uh, the discipline of your retirement savings. So I think if you if we go through you know the hierarchy of considerations for you know your financial fitness plan, um, the hierarchy from the lowest base level would be you know appreciation for debt and trying to pay that off first so that you're not yeah. So the consideration for debt, secondly, would to be to build up a bit of a margin of safety, whether that is a cash slash fund or insurance. When we talk about insurance, it's the, the life insurance, it's the um, insurance against disability and so on. And those are all important realms, but maybe not for this discussion. But I think that it's to that point, you know, and, and to Neil's point of of one wants to generate your own wealth and that's done through discipline but also a bit of luck it 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 reminds me of the saying you know everyone wants to be lucky and admired but no one is admired for being lucky facts facts yeah yeah yeah. but but the other thing you know uh, and and i'll pose this question to, to both of you and i'll start off with you ruth um if we circle back to the risk piece but we also add to that Something that uh, Neil mentioned, which of course is the tax implication of whatever choices we make in the creation and preservation of wealth. And then, of course, also the implication of, um, you know, the passage of time and what that does to the value, underlying value of money. Let me start off with you, Ruth, and we'll circle back to you, Neil, on what we might want to consider insofar as that is concerned. So it's all good and well for us to put some money away for a bad day. Um, This probably doesn't make us too happy if uh, the bulk of that goes to the tax man or is eroded by inflation. Yes, so taxes and inflation. Um, I think inflation is one of those those things, just like death and taxes, that you need to consider as an as an inevitability. And um, but but other things that maybe don't come immediately to mind, but are also important considerations in one's you know financial plan, is your your future plans to perhaps stay in the country or immigrate. Um, whether you choose to have children or consideration for what dependents, whether they're not directly your children or, or greater family members, those are, are aspects that can, in a sense, dramatically change or potentially even ruin your financial plans as much as taxes and inflation. So I think a healthy plan starts for spending a bit of time to quantify your objectives. And even when those objectives relate to what is your what is your definition of 
being wealthy as opposed to to rich and so it, it it comes to more of those those value considerations but it's always important to look on the practical side of things and and just ensure that you have had due consideration for do you plan to stay in this country is your nest egg going to be built here if it is are you using a tax efficient vehicle to do so maximizing all of the benefits available to you if you are unsure of whether you're remaining here what kind of uh, forward-looking planning can you do in that regard and and then to my point of of providing for dependence mm. neil well, two practical aspects one can think about is that you don't give them any tax advantages i think there's a responsibility on us all to pay the taxes that are, are due but it, there's also a responsibility to use the tax advantages that are given to us the most obvious one is the retirement savings so maximizing the use of the retirement vehicles that are available to you while recognizing that you may not want to overcommit to those vehicles. So for example, retirement annuities, pension funds, provident funds, which are offered either by the company which employs you or alternatively you can seek them out yourselves in the form of an RA. Those are those are material things that, that you can use. And then the other one is obviously paying debt. Uh, the, clearly the important thing about this is that when you compound returns over time, the higher the compounding rate is, the greater the outcome will be in the future, and a small change in compounding rate can make a very different, can make a huge impact to the final amount of money you get. So, for example, if you put money on a fixed deposit at nine percent and pay tax, your after-tax return is close to five. If you put money in your bond and earn nine percent essentially by not having to pay interest on that debt, your your return is actually nine, because there's no tax on that nine because there's no receipt in the process of earning that nine percent. So unless you've got something very special to invest in or unless you're trying to create an international portfolio, paying off debt is for the most part a very sensible thing to do. It's not always. There are certain circumstances where debt is very useful. But the use, paying off debt and paying into retirement vehicles is the foundation of what you should be doing because it allows you to compound at a very high rate without compromising any tax principles. And in fact, using to the best of your advantage the tax, as few tax advantages as we are given. Mm. And I guess it also has, you know, um, benefits insofar as the time value of money is concerned as well um, and the potential eroding effect of inflation. Yeah, so the two ways that you have to think about inflation is one is you have to buy assets that over time generate a return in excess of inflation. Those are predominantly equity and property type of assets or assets which we would which we would refer to as higher risk assets. It doesn't exclude other assets in the realms of private equity or to some extent some debt instruments, but the starting blocks are equity and property. And then from there, you know, obviously you try and hold those assets inside of a vehicle where you pay no tax, which is if you take a pension fund that you may belong to as a member of, of a pension fund or a provident fund that you have at a company. And these days they're all referred to as the same thing. So, we're, you know, some of the technicalities. But the principle is that if I can compound over time at a high rate of return without paying taxes until the day that I retire, that'll give me a much better outcome than compounding at a lower rate because I've paid taxes along the way. So specifically in building retirement assets, you want to use the retirement vehicles that are available to you and you want to pay off debt from a tax principle point of view. From an insurance point of view, which Ruth talks about, the, the, the globalization of your portfolios is, is important. So the internationalization of some of your wealth is an important part and you have to work out and budget for how you're going to allocate available capital to those two different 
streams of cash flow. I would like to just chime in for my favorite tax efficient vehicle, which which um, isn't foremost on Neil's mind, but I've had some um, practical experience and that's our friend, the, the tax-free savings account in South Africa. Because had you taken that opportunity from the year it was launched, which I believe was 2012, um, which I did for my kids, you you could already be at half a million rand in a in a tax free savings vehicle um, that is perpetually free of tax, right? So small incremental um, additive pieces, as Neil said, mm. at a at a decent compounding rate, um, can really amount to meaningful numbers. And um, and to pinch another phrase, the best time to plant an oak tree is two hundred years ago or right now. Yeah, yeah, and and I guess Ruth, just on that you know, oak tree point that you raised, because I, I guess there is, you know, the certainty associated with um, getting that tax benefit on a tax-free savings account in perpetuity. Uh, but we also know, certainly among us in the younger cohort, that uh, we tend to have a much more sort of open risk-loving attitude than, say, those who might be a bit more risk-averse close to retirement. Um, talk, talk to us about this question of sequencing of risk in relation to where one might be in their life stage. You did mention early on how some of your own familial and household decisions might also influence the appetite you have for risk, but also the type of choices that you might potentially make. Absolutely. Prior experience and the biases, the unbeknown biases that we develop have an integral part on our approach to taking risk. And um, to, to borrow from another podcast that I listened to recently, the statement was made of young people that, that may think that they have investing figured out from an early age. But confidence rises faster than ability, especially in young men. And you need to learn the skill of changing your mind, discarding old beliefs and replacing them with new truths. That is hard but necessary. The ability to change your mind when you are wrong is a sign of intelligence. And that resonated with me because I think we can't, much like we can't help where we are born, we can't necessarily help the circumstances that we grew, grew up in. But I think we mm. can... We can be on a, a path to positive change, whether those are habits that we instill in ourselves or in our children. And I think we have to realize that if if we don't want our children to inherit our biases or we want them to develop better habits than us, then it, it, it can start in the smallest ways of understanding what a budget is, understanding what putting things away are. And once you've been able to build a little bit of a nest egg, it's also important to exercise that muscle of what does it feel like to spend your money? What does it feel like to choose an investment, to commit to something, to weather the ups and downs? That can be done from an early age and in small pieces because just like developing strength and flexibility in your muscles, it's something that needs a repetitive habit, habit in incremental amounts to become better at. Yeah, yeah. And I guess, Neil, to, to Ruth's point, it's, it's really about playing a long innings, a long knock rather than just slogging it out. Um, and one of the things that f for me is, is, is of interest, you did mention quite a bit about, you know, the asset class choices. But if we're also talking about the next generation here, uh, let's talk through things like investing in education, things like putting away, you know, money in a certain vehicle for their use, um, while, of course, you're still working, uh, certainly for many of us uh, uh, younger professionals. I think giving money to youngsters is less important than educating them. So I'm more interested in educating children while they're growing up and letting them learn about money or gaining an education which can create money at a later point in time. So there's no harm in early on starting in a debit order for a, a youngster or a small little share portfolio where participating has an impact. You know, participation is huge. You know, losing money on paper is not the same as losing money on a natural 
financial investment that your mother or father may have given you. So I think that's important that um, individuals learn by participating more so than they do by reading, actually. But I would en encourage them to, in that growing up process, if they get a birthday present, maybe create a unit trust or something like that. And then every couple of months, sit with them and show them how it's gone up or, or down. And that would help in many ways to, generally speaking, keep them invested because that is a big part of of generating wealth over time is not necessarily, you know, you, you talk about the long the long road versus laying it out. And the most important thing is actually, the long road is important, but the most important thing to, is generally sometimes to know when to slug. Okay. You know, if you think about a sports game, um, you know, the, the best sportsmen sometimes understand when they have to do certain things, the big points, when's it's important, when does it matter? Investments are not that different in many respects. You have to have an underlying competency which is with you through your life. You have to put away money every year. But every now and then you're given what they call the fat pitch, which is the sort of Warren Buffett, Charlie Munger type of story that Ruth referred to. When you're given that fat pitch, you have to have the skill, the ability, and the funds to actually take advantage of those things in life because they don't come along too often. And the real ability to know is, is to know the difference between what is a real fat pitch and an ability to make some money out of a particular risk you're going to take versus something that looks like it's really good but is actually something that is not very good. Uh, that is a skill set that gets built up over a long period of time. And the real skill for youngsters in this is to know when they don't know. This looks like it's all right, but let me go and speak to my cousin or my father or my advisor as to whether – so double-check the your thought process – because most successful investors just don't make big mistakes. I'm sorry to interrupt. I don't think I did your, um, the question justice in terms of sequencing risk. Maybe you'd like to elaborate on that because I think it is an important consideration. Yeah, so sequencing risk is probably more important for people closer to retirement or entering into a later part of their life. Sequencing risk really refers to making a big decision at a point in time because you have to and buying an asset at the wrong price, which then results in an outcome which is suboptimal. Uh, the best example of this is people that enter into retirement, uh, pick a retirement vehicle which is essentially linked to equity and they buy that equity at the top of the market or a very expensive price. So the risk management around sequencing becomes more important as you get older. You can make a mistake when you're young, generally speaking, because you have lots of time to recover. As you enter into the retirement phase, you have to be far more careful about not making inappropriate investments at the wrong time from which you can't recover. Now, if I'm 25 and I buy an equity at the wrong price and it declines, that's no problem at all. I'll put that down to knowledge. If I'm 65 and I make an invest in equity investment at the wrong period of time and I get it wrong, there's no time to recover. And that is a real problem. So, you know, discuss sequencing risk with your advisor. That may be the right advice, but is this the right time to take on that type of risk given my circumstances? That is essentially what we refer to as sequencing risk. Yeah. Neil and Ruth, if you could go back to your younger selves, what would you consider or do differently? Ruth, I'll start with you. And then you. Yes. So it, uh, it might not be a good place to start because I could get quite carried away <laughs> with this question. But let me maybe make it succinct in that I was asked the other day, um, what are my life hacks? And I suppose if I determine something to be a life hack now, then the earliest, the earlier I'd known that, the better. And uh, so my life hacks, it, it may bring a smile to some people's faces, but it was quite simply um, laser, lift clubs and empowerment. And what I mean by the empowerment factor is really the helping, uh, the, the translation of knowledge at an early stage to younger people. And so I've seen how 
once I've been through the pain of a certain circumstance, how can I reframe that for my children in a way that's simple enough for them to understand so that they can process that and potentially learn from that? Because I think ultimately, whether it's with money or whether it's with education, we want to provide a better life for our children. And we know that that can't necessarily be placed in their hands because then they would take it for granted. So sometimes we need to invite them to be in a place of discomfort or dis-ease and much like the saying in yoga goes and breathe into that. So what are the points of discomfort or dis-ease that I know that they will be experiencing? How can they anticipate that? How can they cope with that? And I feel in that way you are able to empower them. Neil? I would have taken a lot more risk at an earlier stage in life than I did. Knowing now that over time risk tends to dissipate because time will bail you out. The other thing that I've learned, and this is maybe extremely important for people listening to this particular podcast, is that when you pick a journey that you're going to invest on, you need to pick a market that's going to reward you for your patience. So you'll often hear people say, just buy an equity and hold it forever. Well, that doesn't work if you invest in a country that doesn't actually um, have capital rights or property rights or has a capitalist system. So you need to decide if you're going to make a lot of equity investments earlier on, you have to be relatively certain that the market you pick is going to reward you for the patience that you have and for the risk you're taking. So, for example, I would have made a lot more equity investments a lot earlier and I would have predominantly invested in the U.S. because I have a reasonable amount of certainty that that particular market is geared towards a capitalist outcome. Now, in my private life, when I make decisions around other things, I might not make that a major consideration. I might invest in something for different reasons than making money. It might have to do with the helping somebody or establishing something that I think is important for the community. But in terms of building my retirement funds, I have to invest with people and in companies that have the same view that I have, which is I want to get paid for the risk I'm taking. So, the, you know, if you went along to somebody in a, in a country that has no capital rights or property rights and says, listen, just invest and keep it there and keep on adding to it, well, that's actually terrible advice. Rather say to them, find a country or a set of companies that you can invest in where you reasonably certain that over time, the risk that you take will be rewarded and then allocate capital and keep allocating capital and build that portfolio over time. And every now and then when markets fall and give you an opportunity for a fat pitch, make sure you allocate significant capital to the great companies which are hardly ever cheap. That would be what I would change. In those few moments in my life when markets have fallen a lot and I get the chance to buy great companies at relatively good prices, I would make significant investments, even if I had to borrow some money to make those investments in that point in time. Yeah. Look, I must say, I must tell you, Deal, as somebody who um, in my very short life has lived through a few financial crises, um, you know, to hear you speak like that is, I'm not sure, 98, 2002, 2007, 8. I don't know if uh, COVID would be that as well. But um, maybe just the last comment as we wrap up. You mentioned this point around outlook and value system. So, so you want to invest where you're going to get a particular level of certainty and predictability and longevity. Um, talk to me about what you're observing in value system and outlook differences along different generations, because your money philosophy might not necessarily be the same as your son's philosophy or even their children's philosophy. Um, so let me start off with you, Neil, and then uh, we'll wrap up with Ruth. I don't think every family is the same, but I can certainly talk about my family. And I learned a lot of things about wealth from my father. I was fortunate enough to have a father that, um, and still do have my, my dad, um, that taught me a lot of lessons about money management, 
both in terms of the practicalities of money management, the technical side, but more the, the soft things, you know, the, the value of money. I think Ruth used a lovely term earlier on, the scarcity of money. Um, these are important things to learn, but then you also learn how to, need to take, how to take risks. Now, sometimes you actually have to work out what you're learning from your parents to know what the other things are, because sometimes you can learn certain lessons which you entrench, but they're not, they're only part of the story. So if, you know, in my case, I have a father who grew up during the Second World War, whose mother was, you know, she grew up on rations of two eggs. Now, that's a very good lesson to learn, but it's, it's not enough to help you take risk when you're an entrepreneur because you may never take risk because you become too conservative in your outcome. And that's where I think if you understand your own behavioral biases and you get people who you trust to talk to you, your friends and other people, they will point you to these things so that when you know the time is right to do something, but you're not able to, sometimes it has to do with your DNA, which you need your friends to point out to you. You're being too conservative. You need to take risk now. So I would spend a lot of time finding people around me who I trust and who I can use as a counter, as a counterboard or a sounding board to make sure that some of the things that I've already have, which are already good things, are not clouded out by some things that I don't have. And that I think would be good advice to somebody who's got a very strong you know, you, you have to change your mind. I think Ruth said that earlier on as well. You have to be flexible and you have to be determined and long-term. You have to be many different things. But just get the foundation right. If, you know, if I can make that point, get the foundation right. Do the, do, do the obvious things. Don't make big mistakes. Then you're on the way to being relatively successful. To pick up on Neil's point of having the different conversations, um, to, to play back those points and see how it resonates with you or what, what biases or, or possible blind spots have been uncovered. I'll have conversations with my, my father-in-law who lives with us. And I remember the one conversation we had, I was, I was trying to play back why my father had had concerns about me entering financial markets in the banking world. And he'd had, he saw banking in, in quite a skeptical bad light. And my father-in-law took me back to a time of, um, you know, trains being robbed and and banks foreclosing on businesses and they were seen as you know the, the baddies that came collecting and so it's so interesting to to take yourself back a number of years and say well this is the person's association with that type of establishment or given this person's age and disposable income and lack of dependence and ability to recover from risk this is the, the type of bet they're planning to um, to place and so by having those conversations across multi-generations and people of different means and so on is useful and I do try and then um, apply those conversations to as I mentioned before my children but also the people that work around me so for example my staff and so on um, because there's a lot of misconceptions there too and I think being able to, to simplify it and explain it in a way I mean they always say that unless you can explain something simply you don't understand it well enough. Yeah Ruth and Neil? I really appreciate this discussion we've had, um, and, and I think there are a few things that come out. Um, this dogged determination, yes, to go on the journey and to stick it out is one. I think the other, this point around uh, communicating with those with whom you have some trust, um, and I think this idea of getting a trusted advisor, um, be it among your own circles or even professionally, uh, is something quite important for us to take out of this discussion. Really appreciate that the pair of you could take time out to speak to us. Uh, and thank you very much. Thank you, Ayabongo. My pleasure. Thanks very much, Ayabongo. That then, folks, brings us to the end of yet another informative conversation. We do hope that these nuggets of insight that we've shared with you over the past few episodes are edging you closer to your wealth creation aspirations. 
Please do visit Investec Focus Radio to catch up on any of our previous episodes and to stay in tune with all of our upcoming episodes in this series. The views expressed are those of the contributors at the time of publication and do not necessarily represent the views of Investec Wealth and Investment International and should not be taken as advice, guidance, or recommendation. Investec Wealth and Investment International, a member of the JSC Equity, Equity Derivatives, Currency Derivatives, Bond Derivatives, and Interest Rate Derivatives Markets, an authorized financial services provider and a registered credit provider.